Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for your sovereign hand that leads and guides and directs. I pray, Lord, that you'll open our hearts, each one of us, to reflect and to consider what type of religion we hold to. Help us to consider our view of who God is and how that view manifests itself in our own lives. Lord, change us. Lord, we recognize that there's none perfect save Jesus Christ. Lord, we understand that we all sin and come short of your glory. But Lord, I pray that you will work by your spirit to cause us to press on towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray that you'll use it for your own glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to try uh, to control the slides myself. We'll see if Caleb is able to uh, sit and uh, listen today or not. I'll do my best, Caleb. In the two verses in James 1, verses 26 and 27, James is going to elaborate on what he said in verses 22 through 26. He said, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And these two verses, he's going to give us some infinitely practical examples on how we can tell if we're a hearer or if we're a hearer-doer. Three tests that we see in this passage. And in these verses, or in verses 22 through 26, as I said, he described two groups of people. Those that he identifies as hearers only, and those that he identifies as hearer-doers. Here, those two groups are going to correlate to two different type of people. Two different religions, if you will. You see it right in the verse. He said, first, the first group, he identifies it this way. He says, those that seem to be religious, but whose religion is vain. And the second group, he describes this way. Uh, those that possess pure religion. So, my two points this morning is, first, we're going to consider the test of vain religion. What is vain religion? And so that's where we'll begin. So let's define vain religion as James defines it here before we go on and start testing for it. First, the person with vain religion, they may be outwardly moral, a church attender, active in the ministry, They may pray. They may read their Bibles. There are many people involved in vain religions today that do all those things. And in fact, their their degree of committedness to their religion puts many many of us to shame. The word religion here refers principally to external observable qualities. It is what they do. It's what you can see them doing. These people have religion. They know how to talk the talk. And many of them even outwardly do certain things. There were many people in Jesus' day that were very, very religious. They had their big phylacteries and they carried them around and they they did their their prayers out on the church corner and they, they starved themselves and they fasted for a long time. But their religion was vain. And Christ made that quite clear. Though these people don't necessarily uh, bow to a figurine, the idea here of a vain religion, an empty religion, is one that's synonymous with idolatry. They are worshiping a false god. A religion that, that 
brings no benefit, that has no benefit. And, and as Ed made it clear in Sunday school, many people today, though they don't bow to a little figurine made of stone, uh, stone or wood, yet still many of, uh, in our age are idolaters. Many of our friends, perhaps many even, or some that even sit here today, if you'll uh, look down at James chapter 2, verse 20. James is going to give us a little more insight into what such a person that follows a vain religion is. He describes it here. He says, he describes a vain man. And he is described as someone who is, has a non-working faith. James says that that man is dead. Is someone with a vain religion saved by grace, through faith, by Christ? The answer is absolutely not. They're not possessors of a new life. They come from Jesus, that comes from Jesus Christ. They're not just immature, saved people. They are people that James describes as deceived, who have heard the gospel, but have not placed true saving faith in Jesus Christ. James gives them a test. Look what he says. He says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but, dece- he deceive- but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, just one second. I forgot. Caleb, if I get behind. Yep, here we go. It's better to have you do it. <laughs> So here we have the first test of someone with a vain religion. So having uh, already earlier in this passage, James instructs the, uh, uh, his readers to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. And yet here now he's coming to a very specific application of verses 22 to 26. James isn't saying that bridling your tongue is, is what it means to be saved. But here he's going to use this as a test, as a litmus test, to identify what it truly does mean to be saved. And the idea of the tongue is a big topic, a central topic that, that James has throughout his book. We read a, an extended passage this morning in James 3. He's going to, uh, both in James 3, verses 3 through 5, and then in James 3, 6 through 8, he likens it first, uh, the power of the tongue, to a, a bridle in a horse's mouth and to a, the helm of a ship. And then he likens it to a, a fire and describes it as being full of deadly poison. James recognizes that the tongue is a very powerful thing. And yet, I'd like you to keep a, a finger here in James. And I'm going to ask you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 12 because I think it helps you will help you to start to understand why James is using this as a litmus test why the tongue why is what we say so important he's not saying if a man is a mute man that man must be saved you know because he can't say anything there's something much more important here look at Matthew chapter 12 verse 33 this is the Lord Jesus teaching and he said this Either make the tree good and its fruit good, 
or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. And addressing the religious rulers, he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that man speaketh, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by the words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. What Jesus makes here clear here isn't, isn't merely what you're vocalizing. It's why you're vocalizing it. That's what he makes so very clear. And that's why James turns to the subject of the tongue. And why he uses it with such authority in this test of vain religion. Some time ago, we watched a video on marriage, and it gave one of the best illustrations that I think I have ever seen. The man had a bottle of water. Those of you that were here remember this. He had a bottle of water, and he took the top off, and he shook it. Guess what happened? Water came out. And his question was, why did water come out? And some people said, well, you shook it. His answer was, water came out because water was in. When when things come out of our mouth, and you say, well, they provoked me. They were asking for it. No, why did those things come out? It's because those things were inside. That's the point that Jesus is making, and that's the reason why James uses this as he does. He's not simply addressing what we say. He's addressing why we say it, and he's addressing the heart. Beloved, God is in the business of shaking our bottle, and so is this world. And we need to watch and be ever so careful on what comes out. In Matthew 12, Jesus uses the metaphor of a tree and the idea of bearing fruit. In that same video that we watched with the water bottle, he used another illustration, perhaps the second best illustration that I've ever seen. I'll share this one too. So I'm stealing them both. They're not from me. The second illustration that he used was that of a tree. And he said this tree every year grew blighted fruit. And he was tired of that tree growing blighted fruit. So one day he went out and he picked all those apples off and he went to the store and he bought a bag of beautiful apples and he brought it and he he, he, he nailed them all onto the tree. So when he looked at the tree, it had beautiful fruit all over it. So many times when we address the subject of the tongue, we say, well, I'll start speaking better. Well, no, that's not the problem at all. It's not just that you're speaking better. The problem with that tree was not simply that, it was, that, that uh, uh, there were bad apples on the tree. It was that that true, uh, tree was bearing bad fruit. By us simply getting rid of that bad language and not addressing the root of the problem, which is at the tree, the heart problem, we continue to, to struggle and to, to be caught in that vain religion. You might be a religious person. But if you pr- produce rotten, blighted apples, here the Lord uh, James is saying your religion is vain. The only way you can produce good fruit is if you are a good tree, and the only way you can be a good tree is if you 
you see yourself vitally rooted and sustained in faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I don't curse and I don't take the Lord's name in vain, but let me for a moment remind you of what the, Lord, what the Bible tells us is unbridled speech. Let me see if I've missed any on my overhead here. have it. What is unbridled speech? Think of this. I'm just going to share these with you. And, and uh, the men in our, uh, these are coming from a book that uh, the men are studying, Disciplines of a Godly Man. We considered these. Unbridled speech is gossip. Saying behind a person's back what you wouldn't say to their face. Unbridled speech is flattery. Saying to a person's face what you wouldn't say behind their back. Innuendo, suggestive speech that fosters misunderstanding. Lying, saying what is not true, whether it's white, black, or gray, they're all false. God's word lays a premium on truth. Criticism, fault-finding. In the the book that uh, the men are considering, the man says, it seems to be endemic to the Christian church we would often do well to follow that old adage. If you don't have anything nice to say, like Ed said, whoop, right? keep your mouth closed. Another way, another form of unbridled speech is diminishment, putting people down, being cutting with your words. Often sarcasm enters in, passing along damaging truths merely to make someone look bad. We need to be ever so careful on what comes out of our mouth because it is, it is a sign of what, what is within and, and what, we are, uh, what we are rooted. Here James says, Caleb, can you move me forward, please? That such a person is deceived. If you'll remember back in verse 22, Notice how James describes the one that is a hearer only. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. And here again, James refers to the one that is of a vain religion, the one that doesn't have a bridled mouth. That person is also deceived or deluded. They're lying to themselves. Out of the abundance of the mouth... The heart, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if the mouth is speaking evil, then guess what's in the heart? Some people may believe the lie. And so J- here James is giving you a test. Do you have an unbridled tongue? It's the single test that James gives for this type of person. I pray that you'll apply it to your lives. We'll come back in just a moment. But let's go on now to the second test, the test of pure religion. Here, James doesn't just say, here's one test. He gives us a test on both sides. Before we begin, let's consider pure religion. In contrast to vain, empty, or worthless religion, James is going to describe something that is pure, something that has the absence of corruption. 
The only other place that James uses this word pure, he uses it in James 3, verses 17 and 18, when he says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, and peaceable, and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. There in James 3, James gives us a whole elaboration of what pure religion is. And many of those same traits we see in Galatians, where Paul says, here's the fruit of the Spirit. Pure religion is outward practice that manifests wisdom, that walks just as James is calling us to walk. Again, it's not just the behavior that he's getting at. It's at the heart reason for that behavior. Let me remind you that wisdom is the path that leads to joy. And that's, that is what James is writing this letter to point his uh, readers towards. Do you want to know the way to joy? It doesn't come through vain religion. It comes through a pure religion. It doesn't come through unbridled speech. It doesn't come from a heart that that spews that out, but it comes from a heart that behaves in quite a contrary contrary way. In James chapter 1, verse 27, he's going to give us the first test of this, of pure religion. And the test question you see in verse 27, the first, the first part, it says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. Now, I'd like to consider that for just a moment because just as um, this is, James isn't giving a comprehensive list of what pure religion is, he's giving us a test question to evaluate our religion against. Let me remind you what God says about the fatherless and the widows in especially Old Testament times. Exodus 22, verse 22. God says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Children and women during Old Testament times and during biblical times were, were, were those that were really exposed to, uh, they were largely defenseless. They had very few rights and were very low on the social status, uh, on the social ladder of the time. They were easy targets for abuse. And many people abused them. And God said, uh, it is unjust. It is wrong for people to, re- to, to treat them this way. Unless you think it's just an Old Testament command, let me remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Paul says, honor widows that are widows indeed. Verse 5, now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications, prayers, night and day. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own and specifically for those of his own house, he shall be shall denied to faith and is worse than an infidel. Paul is saying, Widows are those, widows that are widows indeed are those that the church is to, uh, is to take care of. Even in the, in the book of Acts, you'll remember in the book of Acts, why were deacons originally set apart? They were set apart for the, the care of widows. God's word consistently uh, identifies this group as people that need to be uh, of special care. 
But the most significant verse that helps us to understand why God uses this as a test of pure religion comes from Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5. And if you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm going to read that quickly. It says, Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him, a father of the fatherless, and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. What is God's relationship to those that have no father? He is their father. What is God's relationship to those that have no husband, who have lost their husband? He is the one that judges and watches over them. He is the one that will provide for them. God, and and if you look at verse 27 of James 1, there God identifies himself in a very specific way. He says, God the Father. Here, James is saying, That if you're a doer of the word, if you're holding to pure religion, then you'll see these people in just the same way that God sees these people. That you will respond to these people in just the same way that God responds to these people. You'll not take advantage of them. You'll not play on them simply for your own benefit. But you will love them like God loves them. You will provide for them like God provides for them. Isn't that the very definition of wisdom? Seeing this world like God sees this world? Behaving towards this world as God behaves towards it? The one first test that he gives us for pure religion, for exercise, is in the exercise of wisdom, he says, I view widows and orphans this way, and so too are you. If you have true religion, if you're walking in wisdom, your loves will necessarily change. It won't be a sacrifice for you to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Remember what Christ says about his church. How do you view his church? Here's another test Christ views the church as his bride. Do you love the church? The Bible says that God hates pride and arrogance and the evil way. Do you hate those things? God loves the world. He loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. How do you look at this world? Not the world system, but those that are walking blindly towards eternal destruction. Do you see them as Christ does? The first test that he gives for a pure religion is to visit the orphans and widows. The next test is found in the second part of verse 27. Let me read it one more time. Pure religion and undefiled before God are the Father is this. Test one, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And secondly, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, I think that we have addressed this idea of the world uh, uh, several times. Here, James is referring to the values and to the thinking and to the culture and to the system in which we are slogging through. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 says, For this, all this is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
It's not of the Father, but of the world. We are to keep ourselves untainted and unspotted from that. We live in a world that's increasingly materialistic, that is increasingly accepting of immorality of all sorts and shapes and sizes and kinds. It's a world that increasingly describes everything God defines as truth, goodness, and beauty, and they define it as false, bad, and ugly. And everything that God defines as false, bad, and ugly, they define as truth, goodness, and beauty. Beloved, we're immersed in that world every day. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Do you really believe that? And is that what you're valuing? Or are you looking at what's sitting in your neighbor's driveway and desiring that? Or looking at the, the, the spouse that your neighbor has? Or looking at their house, that, or, their house or, or whatever they might possess? Are you looking at the position that someone in your, in, in your uh, workplace has and you want that more than them? And you'll do anything for that. Just a couple more pennies in your wallet. Is that what you really want? Are you watching television and are you being sympathetic with the, with the claims and the demands that are being put out on, on the news programs. So many in the Christian church are accepting the argument that, that, uh, that uh, homosexual marriage is something that is to be adopted. That it's just, you know, we just need to love our neighbors. No, that's not loving your neighbor. We need to stand by God's word unapologetically. and not allow its thinking to come into our mind because it's not simply that you know we don't do those things it's that we don't think that way that's what true religion is James calls the possessor of pure religion to be unspotted by that system Remember the description that Jesus gave of the author uh, by the author of, of Hebrews he said this We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. If we are living Christ's life, how is our life to look? It's to be without sin. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Paul explains the implications of Jesus' life upon ours. He says, if you be, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation or the former life, put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which is created in, in righteousness and true holiness. That's what pure religion looks like. Pure religion isn't sinless religion. John makes that explicitly clear. I'm not calling for sinless perfection, but I'm calling for putting on Christ. Most explicit meaning that we have from this is that it means that you remain morally pure. It's a hallmark of pure religion. But morality for morality's sake is vain. What Jesus and I are calling for is a change in your heart that comes by faith, and it produces works. 
It manifests itself in the fruit of the Spirit. It's a death to self and it's a life lived unto Christ. The second test that he gives us of pure is a pure religion is that it doesn't look and act in love and hate like the world. We are to be a peculiar people. I pray that you're peculiar in that way. So how are you to respond to this message? If you have an unbridled tongue and you find that you lie and you gossip and you demean and you criticize and you flatter, even if you are publicly perceived in in different ways, I pray that you look into your own heart and into your own life and ask yourself, what type of religion am I holding to? Am I holding to the to the to the cross where where Christ died and was where his blood was shed to atone for my sins? Do I look on him in reverential awe? Do I desire to be like him? Do I desire to put off the old man? Do I desire to see my own flesh crucified and to die to that old life? I pray if you can't say adamantly, yes, that's my heart's desire. Though I fail so often, I pray that God would empower me. Then you need to ask yourself, is my religion vain or not? If you've placed saving faith in Jesus Christ and you see some fruit, but you long for more, let me assure you that Christ desires that as well. He doesn't desire you to to be uh, content in your your lukewarm Christianity. Don't get hung up in your own theological system, but do what's right. You, my friend, can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. In your flesh, you can do nothing. Don't continue in sin. God says, God forbid that you should do such a thing. If God is right now working in your heart, then seek out what he is calling you to, this pure religion, by putting on Christ, by learning more of him, by renewing your mind, by loving him as you, as you, as you read his word. Paul tells us that he will also work in you the ability not only to will it, but to do it. In Philippians 2.13. And he calls us to press on. Brother and sister in Christ, don't be content at where you are, but press on. Three tests. One of a vain or an empty or an idolatrous religion. And two that James gives us to identify a pure religion. Which is yours? You can't have it both ways. I pray that you will hear the Spirit working in your heart today and that you'll obey Him and turn unto Him and be be enamored with His glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for the Word of God. Lord, that uh, that Your Word is not something that's imprecise, but Lord, it is specific. Lord, I pray that you would use it to convict us. Lord, help us to consider what's in our hearts. And Lord, help us to hear what comes from our lips as a reflection of what's in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to consider our works. And Lord, though our works do not save us, Lord, our works reflect what's in our heart. 
Lord, I pray that you will keep us unspotted by, from this world. And Lord, that you would compel us and, and draw us on and help us to press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the word and pray that you would do an eternal work in our hearts and lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.